This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. If you've ever dreamed of walking out into your yard and picking fresh, ripe fruit for your kitchen whenever you wanted, you're not alone. Many of us are fruit lovers and wish that we could even have just one tree that would produce our favorites. But the thought of figuring out whether or not a fruit tree would even fit in your yard, much less the care involved, whether or not you'd need a pollinator, how long it would take to get your first harvest, and all those other questions may have stopped you in your tracks in the past. I know when I was in our suburban home, I didn't even consider planting fruit trees because I had no idea how much space I would need, whether or not it would block the sun too much for the area where the kids played, and whether or not we'd even still be living in that house by the time it started to produce. Let's demystify the process of deciding on a fruit tree for your garden. Yes, there are a lot of factors to consider, but the good news is there are many options for types, sizes, varieties, years to maturity, and the level of maintenance that different fruit trees need. There's bound to be something out there that fits your space and your gardening style, even if that space is a balcony or your gardening style could be defined as, well, maybe less than attentive. <laughs> so before you give up on the idea of having your own fruit tree or trees in your garden, let's talk about what you should consider before making your final decision. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So I'm going to record this part of this week's podcast from my truck. I'm actually out making deliveries right now, and I had a thought pop into my head that I wanted to talk about, and I didn't really want to wait. So I'm recording this on the fly in my vehicle. So if you hear, if you hear traffic noises, that's why. Um, and I'm going to skip talking about the DRL today because I think this is more important. And it's the idea of the summer garden burnout. And I don't care if you are in a climate where you have a really, really long summer growing season, or if you're in a climate that only gets, you know, six to eight weeks of summer weather for your warm season crops, and then you start to cool off again. I think this affects everybody. You get to the middle part of the gardening season and you've just been doing and doing and doing and doing and doing. And I don't think it matters if you've had a really, really successful season and things have all seemingly gone right, which if you're one of those people, hallelujah, I feel very good for you. I'm so glad for you. Um, and Or if, if you're somebody who has just had a horrible season, like everything has gone wrong. I think both ends of the spectrum feel that summer burnout. And 
you can get to the point where, at least for me, you, you just look at things and go, I just can't. I just can't do one more thing. I just can't do any more. And for those of us who also are trying to preserve part of the harvest, I think that also leads to an even bigger feeling of burnout. Because if you're growing all of your fresh stuff and you're harvesting for your evening meals, but then you're also growing extra so that you can preserve in order to be able to have some of that harvest during the off season for you and your family. It's almost like you've got double the work. And uh, and especially in the heat of the summer, like I mean here the, the heat has been absolutely ridiculous. And it does not look like it's going to let up anytime soon. This is actually out of the ordinary for us. I haven't seen this type of heat and this lack of rain in about 10 years. I think 2012 was the last time that we saw something this dramatic. And there is no way on earth that I am canning anything right now. It doesn't matter if I had an outdoor kitchen set up or not. Um, it's just not gonna happen. I'm not heating up any more than I already have to. Now, <laughs> I've, I've sort of the saving grace of the fact that we lost all of those tomatoes um, and the fact that we had a very late spring my sauce tomatoes, my canning tomatoes, the Amish paste that are planted up by the house have not started producing yet. So even if I wanted to be canning a whole bunch right now, I wouldn't be able to. But that being said, it doesn't matter if you're chopping stuff up to freeze it or if you're putting it in the dehydrator or whatever, that is an extra layer of work. All of these things combined may very well get us to the point where we're looking at our gardens and going, eh, nope, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore and it also makes it to where we may not even want to consider planning or starting a fall garden and and I want to caution you against that I understand the the frustration and the burnout um, of, of being in the middle of the season and just looking at the weeds that need to be pulled and the tomatoes that need to be trellised and the things that are done but they need to be pulled out and then you have to refresh the soil and on and on and on and on. There's so much work to be done. This is supposed to be something that we enjoy and at times it feels like it's, it's more work than anything else. And just try to remember that this is a temporary feeling. I feel it every single year, <laughs> every year without fail at this time of year. And I have to remind myself, I have to look at the calendar and go, oh, that's right. It's the middle of July. It's the end of July. It's the hottest part of the year. And, and it's the busiest time of the season. And I feel like this every single year, but in a couple of weeks, I will get over it because the seasons will start to change just a little bit. You know, new varieties of things start coming in. There's new things to do. It's sort of like a, a, a refreshing kind of change of scenery in the garden, if, if that's one way to look at it. Um, and then you start getting towards the end of August and beginning of September and things really start to look a little bit different. And then the cool, you know, time of the year starts again. And that will really give you sort of a refresh. You just have to like get to that point. And I know, I know, I know it's hard. I just don't want you to give up and miss out on what could be the best part of the season for you. So if you're feeling burnt out and you're feeling like you just wanna be done with it all, 
that's okay. And nobody says that you have to continue with the garden. If you've gotten everything done that you wanted to do, if you've harvested everything, you've preserved everything you wanted to preserve, you are sick of tomatoes or you're sick of peppers or you're sick of whatever it is that you're pulling out of your garden, okay, that's okay. Don't don't feel like you have to <laughs> to stick with it just because you said, oh, well, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. If you completed what you wanted to do, then you can be done. But don't underestimate the value of being able to pursue a fall garden, even if you feel like you are done with the summer stuff. If you want to pull those plants and throw them in the compost and say, forget about it, I'm over it, and take a few weeks to sort of recuperate and refresh yourself and just think about what's going to be going in in the fall and think about the things that you can put in and make, maybe make a plan, then I'm pretty sure that just taking a couple of weeks to do that will renew your interest in your garden and will renew your vigor, I guess, for, for what you want to do. If you truly do enjoy gardening, don't allow this summer pressure um, to get to you and to discourage you from continuing. Um, the other thing too is if you haven't reached your goals, if you really had a goal to, you know, can up X number of jars of tomato sauce and X number of jars of pickles and whatever, and the weeds got the better of you, or the diseases got the better of you, you haven't gotten the harvest that you wanted, and it doesn't really look like you're going to, that's okay too. Do not feel like you failed in some way because your garden didn't yield what you had hoped it would. Take advantage of some other folks like at the farmer's market or maybe your, your neighbors who garden who do have an abundance of things and see if you can get something from them to at least complete that part of your goals. It may not be coming from your garden at this point, but at least you won't feel like you put all of this effort out and it just, it didn't amount to anything. Um, I trust me with after losing the tomatoes off of all 400 of those tomato plants I I feel where you're at now if there is uh, a chance that you can still get a good harvest but there are just so many tasks that need to be done that it's feeling just overwhelming I have really really embraced time blocking and breaking things down into much smaller, more manageable chunks. And this has worked really, really well for me when I go into the garden and I look at a particular area and just see, for instance, that it is completely overrun with perennial weeds that have popped back up again. And if you have perennial weeds, you know that a lot of the time they have very, very deep root systems. They're very difficult to pull. It takes a lot of energy to get it done. And just looking at that, I will just have this instant tendency to go, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. I'm going to leave it. Forget it. Let the weeds take over. I'm just not going to get anything out of that. But I know in the back of my head that if I am to tackle those weeds, I'm giving that crop a really good chance and I absolutely could get a good harvest out of it. So what I will do is I will set myself a timer 
and I'll put the timer on on my watch and set it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever I think that I can manage at that moment and just say, okay, go. And as much as I can get done in that 20, 30, 45 minutes is what gets done. I guarantee you, you're going to have two things, one of two things happen. You're going to step back at the end of that 20, 30, 45 minutes and go, okay, look, see, I got something accomplished. Awesome. And then you can walk away and go off and do something else. And then the next day, come back and do the same thing again and be able to accomplish your task that way in those smaller chunks. The other thing that might happen is your, your watch goes off at the end of that time period and you go, oh, look how far I've gotten. Ha I can keep going. And you've got that renewed interest in what it is that you're doing and you kind of lit a fire under your own butt and to say, oh, you know what? I can keep going. I can do another 20 minutes. I can do another 30 minutes. That's fine too if that works for you. And that way you get the task done faster and you can focus on something else. You might be sore the next day. I'm just warning you, <laughs> but um, but it would be it would be worth it. Don't don't immediately give up just because you see that there is a huge task in front of you and you feel like it just can't be done. It can be done. You just have to break it up into smaller pieces in my experience. That's what's worked for me. So hopefully that will work for you too. If you are in the middle of this sort of summer burnout um, in your garden, um, reach out and let me know if you're kind of in that same space and we can sort of commiserate a little bit together because um, sometimes it helps to just, you know, sit with somebody else and go, oh yeah, is, is it is it sucking the life out of you right now? Yeah, me too. Okay. And, and make each other feel better. So um, reach out to me if you're, if you're feeling your burnout too. And I will say that I recorded that segment almost a week ago. And since then, we got rain on Monday. And it was only in the low 70s Fahrenheit. It was so comfortable. And we're looking at another four days of possible rains this week. And it has done wonders for my mindset. It was so comfortable walking out into the gardens in those temperatures instead of the upper 90s. And the gardens are equally as happy, finally having seen some rainfall. There's about to be an absolute explosion of growth this week because of it, and I am not going to complain about that at all. So it's amazing how quickly you can go from feeling summer burnout to feeling excitement over what the possibilities are for your garden in the fall. All right, so the question of the week comes from Meg over on the Instagram, and she sent me a message a couple weeks ago that I thought I would share with all of you. If you're in a cooler climate, you may still be growing your potato crop, or if you're like me, you might be planting a second fall potato crop right now. Either way, there's some important information here. Meg said, I ran into something new this season with my potatoes. We hilled our potatoes three times this season. Everything went great. We did our last hilling, and since then, some of the plants started to show leaf curl and soft stems. Grasshoppers have been bad this year, and I haven't seen a potato beetle since our first hilling. I assumed the few soft stems were from hilling and the stems snapped. 
I checked today and found I'm getting rot in the stalks lower down, but not on all the plants. There's also some mold in the hay layer. We do drip irrigate when it's dry, and it seems more moist after we got light rain last week. Any advice? So Meg and I did have some back and forth conversation about this, and I recommended removing that last layer that she had put on and um, just to get some more airflow around the plants. I told her not all varieties of potatoes will send tubers out along the stem, only the indeterminate varieties. If it's too wet around the plants, especially if there's no growth, that might be causing the mold. And then additionally, the leaf curl could be caused by too much water or not enough water or viruses in the potatoes. I mean, that's not confusing at all, right? So Meg sent me an update a couple days later and said she did pull that last layer back and the plants were looking really rough, but it was only one variety, her Yukon Golds. She didn't realize that Yukons are a determinant. She said if she'd waited even another day or two that the plants likely wouldn't have made it. So instead, the plants just kind of flopped over a little bit without that layer that she removed there for them to lean on, but then they started growing back upright almost immediately. So there are a few really good points here. First off, Meg did a really good job of looking at all of the factors that she could recognize might be a problem. She looked at insect press pressure, she looked at the moisture level, um, whether or not it was happening to all the plants or only a few. Those are all really great ways to get to the bottom of an issue through process of elimination. Unfortunately, she said Google wasn't much help on the other symptoms. And yes, that can be a problem when the symptoms might be common to a lot of different things or when it's happening because of a very specific set of circumstances, which is what happened here. So notice that I mentioned determinate versus indeterminate potato plants. Did that surprise you? Because it sure as heck surprised me when I learned that was a thing. Uh, and that wasn't that long ago. I'd been growing potatoes for probably 10 years before I learned that not all potatoes would benefit from being hilled. Now, had it really made much of a difference for me in most years? No, because in a lot of those years, I hadn't gotten around to hilling my potatoes anyway. I had too many other things going on. But once I did learn this... I made sure to find out which of mine were determinate and which ones were indeterminate. Not because I'd ever seen a problem like what Meg was experiencing, but mostly because I didn't want to waste time and effort doing something that wasn't going to benefit my plants or give me a bigger yield. So this is absolutely a case of you don't know what you don't know, combined with a set of circumstances that created a problem. In this instance, Hilling the determinate plants combined with a sudden increase in the moisture level caused mold issues and the chance for those stems to begin rotting underneath. I would venture to say in most instances, hilling a determinate potato plant is only going to result in more effort for the gardener without any increased yield. But in this case, it was a perfect storm for the potential loss of a crop. It just goes to show that no matter how much we know or how much we think we know, we're always learning as gardeners and every season is going to be completely different from the last. I'm just glad that Meg reached out and we were able to save her potatoes. 
So if you have a gardening question I can answer, please feel free to reach out too. You can DM me on any of my social media platforms, leave me a voice message, or email me from the contact page at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. All the links to all those things will be in the show notes. All right, so let's talk about what we need to be considering before we decide to plant a fruit tree in the garden, or not to plant, as the case may be. To my way of thinking, there are five things to consider and to research before you choose a tree. Number one, your climate and hardiness zone where you garden. Number two, how much space you have in your garden. Number three, how much time you have for maintenance of a fruit tree. Number four, how long you plan to live where you garden. And finally, how you plan to use the fruit. So let's go step by step through these. Climate and hardiness zone. This one is the most obvious. I would love to grow avocados, but there is no way that's happening in my Missouri backyard. <laughs> Likewise, I can't grow citrus fruit. I can't grow tropical fruits. What I can grow is a variety of palm fruits like apples and pears and stone fruits like peaches, plums, and cherries. This is because of our climate. Now let's be clear, the climate where we garden takes into consideration more things than just our average winter low temperatures, which is what our hardiness zone is based on. The climate also encompasses things like the amount of annual rainfall, the humidity levels, and the winds. So even though my hardiness zone is 6A, that doesn't mean that my climate is the same as someone gardening in southwestern Colorado or northeastern Ohio who are also in zone 6A. Their level of rainfall and their humidity and the amount of wind that they get can be very, very different from what I experience. The hardiness zone simply means that my wintertime lows average between negative 10 and negative 5 Fahrenheit or negative 23.3 to 20.6 Celsius. That hardiness zone tells me nothing about how well a particular type of plant will grow here, only that I need one that will survive those low temperatures over the winter. And this is where it's important to look at varieties and their specific requirements. When I lived in Northern California, we had a huge fig tree in our backyard. That was a zone B in that garden with winter lows that very rarely got below freezing. That type of fig would never grow and survive here in my Missouri garden. It's not that figs won't grow in a wide variety of conditions. They do. They can grow in hot, dry climates, and they can grow in tropical climates. But most won't survive severe cold. But the Chicago hardy fig was specifically bred to survive the overnight lows that are common to the coldest zone six winters, and even as cold as zone five with a lot of extra protection, which is why I now have two of them in little pots in my greenhouse right now waiting for me to decide where they're going to be planted. So understand the climate conditions in your area first. What amount of rainfall do you average each year? Do you have frequent winds that roar through your area that may damage fruit trees that tend to grow in a wispier manner than others? What are your average hottest days in the summer? So all of these things are the first things to understand. Then understand your own microclimate in your garden or wherever you plan to keep your fruit tree. 
if you're going to keep it in a pot on the patio, does that patio have a brick wall that's going to radiate the heat? That may make it too hot for some fruit trees in the middle of the summer. Are you gardening in a valley where the, the cold air tends to settle down, keeping your temperatures cooler than the surrounding areas? Heck, we have one field here that is like that. It always settles and frosts earlier than anywhere else on the farm. Do you garden near a coastline that gets buffered from the much colder winter temperatures that the rest of your area experiences? Knowing these things will get you one step closer to finding out what you can grow in the way of fruit trees. So then now you can look at your climate and your microclimate and decide what types of trees will do well in your garden. Internet searches are great for this because it can help you narrow down the possibilities. And then once you have a list going of what works for your climate, then you can look at varieties of those types of fruit that will survive in your hardiness zone. So you may be able to grow apples in your climate, but not all of them are going to be hardy down to your winter lows. So if you're a zone three gardener, your apple selection is much more limited than someone in, say, a zone five garden. Finding the varieties that are hardy in your zone will narrow the list down even further and ensure that you have a tree that comes back every year. And there's one more consideration for many fruit trees, and that's what's called chill hours. Most deciduous trees will not produce fruit um, or will produce very few fruits if they don't first go through a dormant period of a specific number of hours at a specific temperature range. These are called chill hours. The, the number of chill hours are measured um, in the number of hours between 32 Fahrenheit or 0 Celsius and 45 Fahrenheit or 7.2 Celsius minus any time the temperatures are over 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15.5 degrees Celsius during dormancy. So let's let's talk about that again just a little bit more slowly, right? The chill hours are any time the temperatures are between that lower range, 32 to 45, minus any time the temperatures are over 60. Okay, we're talking Fahrenheit here. Those are the total chill hours that a plant needs in order to produce fruit. That's how it's calculated. So, for example, pears need anywhere from 200 chill hours to 1,000 chill hours over the winter in order to flower and fruit the next season. So the number of hours needed depends on the variety. So just because your climate is conducive to growing pears, it doesn't mean you can grow all varieties of pears. Now, this is more of a concern if you garden in an area that has a warmer winter season. You'll need to look for varieties of fruit with very low chill hour requirements. Asian pear varieties, for example, usually only need between 200 and 400 chill hours. The ranges are getting narrower for many of the newer varieties of fruits that are bred specifically to be low chill cultivars, so your selection is getting better. Now, for those of us who have plenty of cold in the winter, this isn't usually a concern, but if you garden in a climate that sort of teeters on the edge, it may be something to pay attention to. This is also the reason that we can't grow citrus or avocado or guava or pomegranate in Missouri. It's not that it doesn't get hot enough here. 
there just are no chill hours for those trees. They aren't frost tolerant and they won't survive an extended period below freezing. And then one little side note to this is that you can often beat the system a little bit by growing smaller varieties of fruit trees in containers that can be moved inside over the winter. In fact, everything that I've read about those little fig trees in my greenhouse says that I can actually grow them permanently in pots and they'll produce perfectly well. The same can be said for dwarf versions of citrus trees and other fruits, which brings us to consideration number two. How much space do you have in your garden area? It's important to research the size of the mature tree when you're looking at different fruit, tree, uh, fruit trees and their different varieties. They vary widely within each species, and there are many new hybrids on the market that are specifically designed for small spaces. There are miniature, dwarf, semi-dwarf, and standard versions of just about every fruit tree out there now. So research the maximum height, which will also tell you the approximate canopy cover of the tree the distance that the tree's branches will spread out into your garden or into your yard. This is going to give you a lot of information. Number one, it will tell you how much space you need, especially if the variety requires a pollinator. See, some fruits need to have another tree of another variety to cross-pollinate or they won't produce any fruit. I have plum trees and I have three of one variety and two of another. If I didn't, I wouldn't get any fruit. So make sure you're reading the tree information closely. If it says self-pollinating or self-fruitful, then you only need one. But if it says it requires a pollinizer or a pollinating variety, then it should list the compatible varieties that will allow that tree to fruit. You can't just choose two different peach varieties and assume that they're compatible with each other. So read up on that. And then secondly, knowing the size of the mature tree will tell you how easy it's going to be to maintain that tree. Fruit trees require at least a minimum amount of maintenance, like pruning each year for a good yield. And if you choose a standard-sized apple tree, for instance, that gets to be 20 feet tall, or sometimes as tall as 30 feet, you're going to need to have a way to reach up into that tree to prune it and to pick the fruit. Not to mention, if it's a variety that needs a partner variety to cross-pollinate, you'll need to plant that one about 30 feet away to account for the canopies. That's a lot of space in your backyard. But if you choose a dwarf variety that is self-fruitful, well, it's only going to be about 10 feet tall at maturity, and you're only going to need one in order to get fruit. That is a much more manageable size for a small backyard. And if you're gardening in a very small space, look for those miniature varieties I mentioned. There are lots of options now. If we're still talking apples, look for columnar apple trees. They are bred to grow mostly straight up in a column. They fruit on the main trunk on spurs, but if you allow it to grow some branches, you'll have sort of an apple bush in a pot. Now, these are not self-pollinating, so you would need two, but think of how cool it would be to have two apple topiaries on either side of your deck. And there's plenty of miniature citrus trees designed to grow in pots and even multi-fruit trees that will grow three or more types of fruit on one plant. Yes, these are grafted to one main rootstock and they're designed to be self-fruitful for the smallest of garden spaces. It's kind of cool. And honestly, I want to grow a citrus one that does lemons, limes, and oranges all on one plant. Mostly just for the novelty of it, but again, I want to prove that I can do citrus. <laughs> No matter the size of your tree, you need to be prepared to take care of it. Which, of course, brings us to point number three. How much time do you have for the maintenance of a fruit tree? 
So this one is sort of subjective. I mean, it is possible to have a fruit tree in your garden that will produce a crop of some kind with absolutely no maintenance from you. Your chances of a good harvest improve, though, with more intention. So most of us aren't planting a fruit tree just for looks, so maintenance is a consideration. Now, we'll go into fruit tree care more in depth in another episode, but basic pruning of a fruit tree will likely only take about a half an hour at most in the early spring, and this will partly depend on the age and the size of the tree. But the other things that you may need to do will be for preventing diseases and pests. This could be, you know, spraying dormant oil and picking up old fruit off of the ground throughout the season. You'll need to be watering, mulching, feeding the tree with fertilizer or other amendments. Much of the heaviest time requirements for a fruit tree actually occur in the first year when you're first planting it. There may be staking involved. You may have to protect the trunk. Now, if you're growing in containers, these trees need a little bit more attention to the pruning portion of this in order to get the best yield and to be sure that they don't outgrow their space. Tree maintenance is just like anything else in the garden, though. The more attention you give it, the likelier it is that you'll get a good yield, but you're probably going to get something out of it even if you ignore it completely. So don't let this point be the one that stops you from planting fruit trees in your garden. But how long you plan to live where you garden may just make that decision for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. long do you plan to live where you're gardening? And why is this a consideration? Well, most fruit trees don't start producing right away. And depending on the size of the variety you buy, some take much longer than others. This usually means they live longer. But what we are concerned about here is whether or not you'll get a chance to reap the rewards of your planting your tree before you move on to a new garden location. Fruit trees purchased at a nursery or a garden center or shipped to you from an online source are usually one to two years old. The length of time it takes to start fruiting after you plant it will depend on the type of fruit and whether it's a dwarf or a semi-dwarf variety versus a standard one. Dwarf and semi-dwarf apple and pear varieties begin to bear fruit at a much earlier age. Other fruits don't seem to be affected in the same way though, so keep that in mind. It may take two to five years for an apple or a pear to start producing fruit after being planted. For cherries and plums, it's more like three to six years. Citrus trees and figs are only about one to two years after planting. Peach trees take two to four years, and pawpaw trees can take up to seven years. So if you're in a situation where you know you plan to move within like the next five years, you may decide against the pawpaw and choose a peach tree instead. And if you're in a rental or a smaller space or just don't know what your plans are, those container trees are always an option. And finally, how do you plan to use the fruit? Now, this might sound like a strange consideration, but it is important. If you're someone who enjoys fresh fruit but doesn't intend to do a bunch of freezing and canning, 
you may not want to choose a tree that bears a whole lot of fruit all at once. For instance, a mature, commercial, standard-sized cherry tree can produce as much as 800 pounds of cherries, and that's over just a three-week period. That's like 4,000 cherries. That's a lot of cherries if you don't plan to make jam or freeze a bunch and still give some away to friends and family. I mean, even a dwarf variety that stays much smaller and produces a much more manageable 20 pounds of cherries in the same time period still not, might not be suited for you if you have no intention of preserving any of that fruit. If we're looking at apples, a mature standard apple tree may produce as much as 500 pounds of apples. A semi-dwarf variety will yield more like 250 pounds, and a true dwarf may be 40 to 100 pounds at maturity. So unless you plan on canning up apple pie filling, applesauce, and apple butter for the entire neighborhood, a dwarf or semi-dwarf may be your best bet. And if the production level of even the dwarf varieties seems like more fruit than you'd know what to do with, you've still got the option of those container varieties. So hopefully the information I gave you today will help you make an informed decision about what kind and type of fruit trees might work for you in your garden, or even make you decide that you just don't want fruit trees. And that's okay too. The better informed we are before we plant something, the better decisions we can make and save ourselves from regretting planting something later on down the road. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll dive a little bit deeper into fruit trees because there's a lot more to it than just picking out the variety and throwing it in a hole. We'll dig a little deeper into where and how to buy them, whether or not you can grow a productive plant from a seed that you saved from another fruit, pruning and care basics, and finally, harvesting and preserving your fruit. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.